This is a HeadGum Podcast. Welcome to our new podcast, Misty Nights Uninformed Afro. The new podcast series will dive into the origin stories, character development, and story arcs of our favorite black superheroines and characters in comics. These are the obscure stories you don't always hear about, and we share commentary on some of our favorite moments in comics. We're going into deep discussions about Storm, Misty Knight, Monica Rambeau, Vixen, Amanda Waller, Riri Williams, Lunella Lafayette, and the Dora Milaje. The series has two hosts, founder and managing editor of BlackGirlNerds.com and host of the BGM podcast, yours truly, Jamie Broadnax. And Stephanie Williams, host of The Lemonade Show. Each episode will reference comic book issues, dates, and creators. That way you can go back and check out the stories for yourself. By the end of the series, you will become a certified expert in the fictional world of black superheroines. Please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear what you think about the show. See you soon. Hey, this is Steph Rywell. Join me bi-weekly at The Lemonade for all things nerdy and geeky, giving you all the sweet and sour notes from the nerd world, as well as my own special commentary to make this blend lemonade just right. Follow The Lemonade at Audio Boom, SoundCloud, High Bean at the Points of Interest Network, and I'll see you guys soon. And I'm Victor. And this is Megashane. Megashane is a queer, people of color, weekly podcast, and we talk about anything from drag, to comics, to video games, to... Boys. And anything else in between. (laughs) So, if you want to listen to us, we're on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud, and you can follow us on Megashane Pod and Megashane on Twitter. That's right. So, follow us, talk to us. We'll be here. And we out. Shannon, CG, Lauren, and Mel form the Nerds of Prey. A group of ladies bonded by comics, gaming, film, television, and fandom culture. Hang out with them bi-weekly as they dig into the very things that make them loud and proud nerds. Available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and Google Play. Also, check out their Patreon at patreon.com backslash nerds of prey. Universal FanCon is a brand new convention coming to the Baltimore Convention Center in April of 2018. FanCon will be a round-the-clock event featuring comics, cosplay, gaming, celebrity guests, music, and more with a focus on diversity and inclusion. Get your tickets now at UniversalFanCon.com because geek is universal. This is Debbie Crow Bell, and you're listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. Hey, this is Rick Fox. From Greenleaf, and you're listening to the Black Girl Nerd Podcast. All right, you know what it is, what it was, what it will be. It's your main man, Jason Mitchell, and you are rocking with Black Girl Nerds. Hey, what up, y'all? This is Jenny Ellis from HBO's Insecure, and you are listening to the Black Girl Nerd Podcast. This is Lisa Joyce from Insecure. 
And you're listening to the Black Girl Nerd Podcast. My name is Felicia D. Henderson. I'm the co-creator of BET's The Quad, and you're listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. Yeah, this is Lewis Tan from Marvel's Iron Fist. Uh, this is Black Girl Nerds. You guys are amazing. I love you guys to death. Check out the podcast. Check out the show. Let's get busy. Hello, this is Jordan Peele, the director of Get Out, and you are listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. Hello, this is uh, the 44th President of the United States, Barack Obama, and you are listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. Hey, 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 you're listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. I'm Dr. Andrea Pennington, integrative physician, acupuncturist, meditation teacher, and sex educator. And guess what? I'm the author of The Orgasm Prescription for Women, 21 Days to Heighten Pleasure, Deeper Intimacy, and Orgasmic Bliss. Keep listening. tuning in to episode 116 of the Black Girl Nerds podcast. My name is Jamie and I am your host. This episode is titled Bilquis the Goddess and the State of Comedy. Two segments. In our first segment, we invite actress Yatide Badaki, who plays Bilquis on the hit star show American Gods. That's right. She talks to us about her role playing one of the most controversial gods on this show. And also she geeks out with us a little bit. It's a fun interview featuring myself, Jacqueline, and Kendall. In our second segment, we have a discussion with comedian John Minus. John Minus has made his second appearance here on the Black Girl Nerds podcast, and he's a member of the comedy troupe Decepticomics. And in this discussion, we talk about very controversial issues in comedy. What's offensive to say? What's not offensive to say? Where are the lines crossed when it comes to making people laugh? So that's our show. Two fantastic segments. If you haven't done so already, please follow us on Twitter at BGM Podcast. And you can always use the hashtag BGM Podcast on Twitter to let folks know about the show and to also comment about your feelings towards this very episode or previous episodes that we've done. So sit back, relax, and have fun with this one. It's BGN 116, Bilquis de Goddess and the State of Comedy. Enjoy. Yutide Badaki is an actress known for playing Bilquis on American Gods. She's a graduate of McGill University with a major in English literature, theater, and a minor in environmental science. 
Utide has also a Master of Fine Arts in Theater from Illinois State University. She's appeared on such shows as Lost, Criminal Minds, Masters of Sex, and NCIS New Orleans. You can currently find her playing the role of Bilquist in the hit TV series American Gods, which is based on the book by Neil Gaiman of the same name. Thank you so much for tuning into this segment of the Black Girl Nerds podcast. My name is Jamie. I am your host. We live tweet this show every week, y'all. It's under the hashtag Gods, G-A-W-D-S. American Gods is the fantastic, epic series by Neil Gaiman, and it's now on Stars. And we are very excited to have on our show none other than we have the amazing actress, Yatiti Badaki. Thank you so much for coming on the Black Girl Nerds podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I, I think you know I'm a big fan of y'all. So this oh. is exciting for me. <laughs> well, listen, we are a big fan of yours. And I'm really excited to just talk to you and geek out about all things American Gods and also learn a little bit more about you. Um, so let, let's start off with Bill Quist, because this character, man, what an intense <laughs> opening in, in the pilot of American Gods. You, you play the goddess Bill Quist, and, and I kind of want to know the origin story behind you getting the role. So can you tell us first what led you be, to become an actor and kind of walk us through a little bit about the process of how you got the role? Well, first off, I love that you use the term origin story because I do the same thing. Um, I think it points out to my nerd. Um, but yeah, the origin story for Bill Quist, uh, or the actually the path to me becoming an actor, started all the way back in Nigeria around the fire with um, my elders telling stories. And I just remembered wanting to be a part of that magic from a very early age. And uh, then I auditioned for my first school play, Peter Pan, by the way, one of the Lost Boys. And as soon as, <laughs> yeah, and as soon as I got up on that stage, there was that recognition of stories by the fire, and I was hooked. Mm-hmm. And um, fast forward how many years, not knowing how I'm going to continue to do this, but always having a love for it, and trying to do the you know, the responsible child thing and first being a major in environmental science. Um, Yes, yes, because it was not necessarily considered, uh, what's the word, the most respectable to be an actor. And, um, but then I just remember waking up one day and going, gosh, if I'm depressed about the idea of class, what is the rest of my life going to be? And performance, acting, Storytelling has always been um, like oxygen to me, like Mm -hmm. air. I just have to breathe. And so I was sneaking in little plays. I was uh, sneaking in some theater classes because on the transcript it showed up as English literature. (laughs) And um, but then finally at that point I said, no, I I, I need to do this. So I did. I got into grad school at Illinois State. Uh, I got for an MFA in theater went to Chicago right after and did some plays there. I was very lucky to get that. And then I did the Actors Mecca to LA. And of course, all this time, um, for anyone I think who is a fan of stories, and especially stories by the fire and magic, 
of course I was hooked on every sci-fi fantasy book that I could find. <laughs> always reading. Always, always reading. And um, so I was a big fan of Neil Gaiman and read um, the, the, the story when it first came out. And wow. it wasn't until 15 years later where I got the audition. And that's it. That was a long story. <laughs> <laughs> that was a fantastic origin story, though. I mean, and that's amazing that you read the book before getting the role, because usually it's the other way around when actors are cast in these movie or TV adaptations. They do their research after the fact. But that's awesome that you were a fan and, and knew yeah, the material. I'm, it was great because then I had years of uh, ideas marinating. Um, not knowing that I'd ever get to use it, but that it was in my subconscious. So I think it was very helpful in the actual process. That's fantastic. Uh, you know, we yeah. here are like super uber fans um, of American Gods and the fandom is very strong. You know, folks mm -hmm. are very passionate about their feelings towards this property, whether it's the book fans or the TV fans or both. Um, they have very distinct feelings towards the characters and the storylines. So do you find yourself being a fan of this property as well? I mean, kind of, you pretty much said that in your origin story, you read it when it first came out. Um, or do you kind of just detach yourself from this completely so that way you can kind of focus on the role? I, th I think it's interesting that I get to play in a sandbox with a whole bunch of fun creatives who are just fans. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> Brian Fuller and Michael Green, um, who in their own right are just the, some of the most amazing storytellers, they will continuously tell you that they are writing fan fiction. Um, and I'm a huge fan, too. Uh, I, you know, I'd like to say I was cool and able to detach myself. Um, I'm not that cool. I, I love the stories that we get to tell. Now, when I'm on set and um, we're playing with the character, yes, something else takes over. Um, and, and, you know, Bill Quist will do her thing when she appears. However, as soon as I hear cut, I'm geeking out over, oh my goodness, we just did that. And oh my goodness, what are we just about to do? Um, yeah, I would say I'm one of the biggest fans. And I think uh, fans have probably seen, I posted the other day because, you know, Neil Gaiman gave me this special edition signed and oh, wow. I just about yeah I just about burst into tears it oh. was one of the most amazing moments of my life I would have burst into tears too <laughs> <laughs> yeah I would have been bragging on Instagram immediately like look at what I got um, like, I'm not gonna lie I did <laughs> like do a close-up on the signature like look yep. guys <laughs> Yes, I did all of the above. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so great. Uh, well, this is Kendall. Um, and I wanted to ask you, uh, when you first read the book back in 2001, so this is before social media, uh, before Twitter and Snapchat, and before you got to brag on Instagram <laughs> <laughs> about your signed copy, when you, when you first read the book, did it have any effect on your perception of um, mythology and religion and technology? I mean, did, I mean, the, sto the story that he wrote, um, 
even though it was written in 2001, is very relevant today. So I, I was just curious to see if when you first read it back then, if it had any effect on those perceptions. Oh, it absolutely did. Because one of the brilliant things that Neil Gaiman did was to write something that talked about the peddling of belief and how we all come towards belief, um, how we deal with it and, and what it does to us. I think that is something that will always be prevalent. That is something that resonated immediately. Um, you know, I, I can go off into tangents about, oh, belief. And I spent so much time in Neil Gaiman's world and sent myself as a reminder of following my dreams, one of his quotes at the end of, what was it, 2015? December of 2015, I still have that quote from Facebook that I sent to myself. And come February of 2016, I'm auditioning for a role in his, in a show that he has. Um, so this idea of belief um, is something that has constantly resonated. And it, it was also something that when I read at the time, that helped to solidify that I was not the only one that thought that way. There's something really great about reading a wonderful writer's words and, and, and seeing um, a part of yourself in there. Uh, and as far as belief, um, that was also a time where I was learning about um, sensuality and, and all of that. And I, I know that immediately that even seeing Vilquis and not knowing exactly what I felt about that, but that it informed something, um, something that, that you know, kind of tickled the back of my head, uh, tickled the back of my brain and that stayed there for a long time. Now, it's really interesting that now, yes, the, 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 the themes that have been interesting and resonated, like the immigration story, I mean, I'm, you know, most people know only recently an American citizen. So that was another, you know, recognition moment. Even though it resonated then, um, I think more so now, it, it's it's in a whole new place. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's, I mean, his work definitely did affect me. It affected me on many levels, on the immigration level, on the you know, finding myself as a as a woman exploring sensuality at that moment, and just as a human being, uh, struggling with the, the ideas of 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 belief, uh, whether in self or of another uh, way of being. I hope I answered that. I hope I didn't ramble through that. For you. No, you did. That was great. That was and and rambling is fine. <laughs> good. Good. <laughs> Perfectly fine. Um, and I also wanted to um, ask you, um, it, it seems to me that Bill Quiz is ultimately searching for connection, which is okay. just something beyond worship. And mm -hmm. as a proud Black nerd, I remember you said this at South by Southwest that you um, enjoy researching and how much you loved researching the character. So mm -hmm. I wanted to know in your preparation, your research for this role, in what way did you connect to Bill Quiz? Mm. Um, so I think you hit it right on the head that that search, 
that Bilkus has for real connection. It's both her strength, her greatest strength, and her biggest weakness. In that, when she finds it, it fulfills her in so many ways. And that when she doesn't, you can see that she is even visibly um, deteriorated. I think that that was immediately my in, uh, just as Utide approaching this role. Um, and I say that because I think that's, for a lot of us, something that we're trying to figure out now. We have so many more devices. We have so many more platforms. It is being sold to us as connection. However, how many times have you, well, I won't say you, <laughs> but I, I'll, the I'll general you, <laughs> you. Yeah, the general you, you've spent hours with people on Facebook or, or Instagram, et cetera. And then you're back in your own space and not feeling that much more connected to anybody. Um, like there was a, a genuine, full, nutritious interaction. And I think it's starting to bleed into the way we date and the way we have um, general relationships. And that was, as far as research, yes, I, I you know, was then looking into different um, myths, um, into different, um, um, you know, ideas of interconnectedness. And I was finding a lot more articles, New York Times, Washington Post, talking about how our generation is having less intimacy in general, um, how we're having a harder time connecting in this super connected world. And I, I can definitely say I identify with that. And I actually like the idea that I get to play with that and that we get to ask that question about how connected are we? Because I think this is a question that is rattling around in, in many people's minds, but not everyone is quite able to voice it yet. And there's something about seeing that, seeing it on the screen and going, ah, yes. I mean, it, it's been wonderful, the reaction when people talk about the museum scene and they talk about you know, all of these these different, yes, sensual moments, but they, they, people are telling me that they're feeling something, that it resonates to them, and that they recognize something. I think, I mean, I would hope that then starts a conversation where people maybe connect a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so this is Jacqueline. And I was just going to say um, from the pilot, because you mentioned about, you know, internet dating and dating in general. I knew mm -hmm. that, that even if I hadn't read the book, I knew that you were a god because you were a black woman that got somebody to respond to her from online <laughs> dating. And that was a miracle. Because I don't know if you've read this. <laughs> like, I was like, yeah, that's a deity right there. Let's talk about it. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Oh, I love that. Yeah, you need to tune in. We're going to do a dating uh, Black Girl Nerd podcast soon. I think you'll enjoy the fun of that one. Um, but um, speaking of the pilot, um, everybody talks about that scene. And I was really going to ask you about 
because we watched it at South by and all three of us were sitting there and we immediately had this huge impression of what this was like it just made the show instantly set apart did you feel that immediately what this could or did you feel immediately what it did mean maybe for women especially mm-hmm. like colorism with black women and sexuality on television like did you have that moment or when did you have that moment the first time I should say I mean I can tell you that there were two ways when I initially read that script I saw that there were two ways that it could go. Um, And for me, sorry, I'll pause for a minute. Um, For me, there was a great fear and a great hope. The great fear was people would see me on there. Yes, there's no clothes and immediately put it in a box and immediately make aspersions about myself and about the show and about um, about a whole lot of things. The great hope was I read that, yes, as a black woman. And I felt empowered. I felt it showed a part of me that I say, yes, this is a part of who I am as an individual. This actually does exist for me. Uh, It was a hope that people would see, not meaning to use a pun, but all the different colors of of what my experience is. And in that, see that in, in everyone else. And the moment when, and, and yes, part of the reason was, yes, I read that first, read that book by Neil Gaiman and it resonated. Then I read that script that Michael and Brian had put together and they're expert storytellers, so it resonated. And the team that I looked at when, you know, considering the role or Um, looking to be a part of the role was exceptional. And every step of the way, even on set, even with costumes, even with makeup, all of them, the... Hello? Certainly each level of that, that was a confirmation that we could do something incredibly beautiful here. And everyone had that same... um, that, that same vision of it, of it being something incredibly transcendent, incredibly beautiful, and, and that would resonate with so many. And But it wasn't until South by Southwest um, that it got a real feeling of what the general public um, would see or uh, the way in which they may react. There were hopes that we all had. There were things that we wanted to bring across, but it wasn't. Until that we saw, okay, people are getting this. People understand that there's so much more that we want to talk about here and so much more that we are representing here. Yeah, it was, it was great. 
I'm not going to lie. I, I, me and Jamie walked out and we're just like, I don't think I've ever seen that. And it's just the most amazing moment that I've ever seen with a black woman owning her sexuality on screen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was huge. That was the first thing we said. Um, but this is not, I mean, this may be the, the biggest profile thing you've done, but you've been acting for a while. Oh, and, yeah. you know, I, 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 I know a show like American Gods helps to change this, you know, what we call the visual landscape about TV and diversity, but I'm sure in your years as a, like I say, working actress in Hollywood, which I don't think a lot of people understand, that means someone like you're not owning your TV show, you're doing, you know, you're just working, you're trying to maintain your lifestyle as a working actor. Um, Character actor, I guess, would be the easiest way to say it. Um, Can you talk about maybe some of the, I would say some of the things that you had to deal with being a black working actress that people don't realize because and maybe appreciate how great this moment is now Mm. it's I mean when I was leaving grad school or even actually starting it I remember Jack McClellan Gray was the one that that recommended me uh, for that program because they only chose six people for two years so six people in all in that MFA class and they did not bring in anybody new for that whole two-year program. And he said to me, he said, Yatide, you're going to have to work twice as hard. And you're going to run into so many things. And just know that that's going to be a reality. And the interesting thing is that I think that was maybe the greatest gift he ever gave me, because it never occurred to me that it would be easy. And I'd seen people Um, almost have a tougher time out of school uh, on so many levels from undergrad or high school or whichever when maybe there was the assumption that things were always going to be easy. However, yet another teacher said, make the work undeniable. Always go Mm -hmm. in and just be undeniable. And even if you don't get that one because of whatever reason, People will still be talking about, remember that audition? Remember that thing? Um, And there were moments, I remember even getting an early, um, an early internet uh, web series. And it had been written as something else, but they thankfully brought me in and I did my work. And, And then they asked me where I was from at the end of the audition. And then I get the script back, I uh, get a contract, and the character had now been changed. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it's not always easy. I'm not saying it's a picnic. However, and I think this is where belief comes back in, of just going, well, I'm going to be doing this. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm going to, and I'm going to give it my all at every moment. And I know I'm going to leave that room saying, well, I did everything that I possibly could. Now, okay, if they're not picking up on this or, or whichever, that's, that's where they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, but many times in the past, and, and I've been lucky, let me, let me be clear about that too. I know some people don't like the word luck in there. Yes, I work my tail off. However, there are, there are these moments where something just seemed to align as well. Um, but people know me. I, I always would. I mean, I'd be that person in that theater production where there's more people in the cast than the audience. 
Um, and strangely enough, there would have been maybe two people in the audience, but that one person was someone that happened to work at some network. You know what I mean? Um, so it was those two bits of advice that I just needed to constantly work and constantly work in my craft. And secondly, be undeniable. And I mean, when I look at people like Viola Davis. Mm. Yes, Lord. Yes, <laughs> right. Just take a minute. Exactly. <laughs> just take a moment to absorb after you had said her name. I mean, it's like put Oprah now. Like you have it. to take, yeah, you have to put some respect on the name. You say Oprah, you need to be like, amen. You say Viola. Amen. Uh, yes. <laughs> take a minute. They'll continue. But, and, and that is another person too, right? That just... Okay, um, I mean, uh, this is one of my favorite quotes. Um, what other people think of you is none of your business. And I can't remember who said that, but it made such a difference to me. It's like, I'm just going to keep going. That's it. I'm just going to keep on going. Um, and, and you see, yes, Oprah is a great example. And you see people like Viola as well. And, and they were just undeniable. So, um, yeah, I think that answered the question. <laughs> no, no, it did. It really did. And I, honestly, I just love hearing anybody speak passionately about women in film, black women in film. Like, I could just listen to you talk about it all day and you, you don't have to answer my questions. So I appreciate you even trying. <laughs> yeah, we, we love your answers. Um, and like at South by Southwest, all all of us on this call, we had the chance to experience this with you in the uh, theater, watching the, the show, and also um, in the press line. And a lot of the cast, just you guys seem like you just genuinely love each other's company. Mm -hmm. And I get a sense that, you know, it's a fun place to be. Um, so I, I want to know, what what is the atmosphere like on the set? I can only imagine with, like, eccentric folks like Brian Fuller and Michael Green that's running things that it's a bit fun, crazy. Um, but what what's the average day on the set like? This is, um, who was it that said this the other day? Orlando. Gotta love that man. Yes. And he, you know, we had just come from something... Um, and it was, oh, that's funny because it was my car hadn't shown up and Orlando had been saying, hey, Utide, are you okay? Do you have your thing? He's like, okay, hop in my car. Um, this is what this group does. This group is family. Oh. And he was saying goodnight and he said, this doesn't happen. And, you know, and, you know, Orlando's been working in this town for a minute. And I got immediately what he said. This is a group of highly creative, highly intelligent, highly passionate individuals. Everyone in their own way is a perfectionist. Everyone is going to give 110%. There's no one in the group that just gives 100. And everyone loves this project, loves it. I mean, there's nothing funnier than sitting there and Crispin Glover is going, well, you know, I don't like many things I work on because he's so, so honest. I love it. I love <laughs> and he goes, yeah, I don't really like many. And, and a lot of times people think the things I like are weird, but I really like this. When are we getting started again? Wow. <laughs> and I love that. 
<laughs> but that's the feeling across the board. Everyone gets so excited. Everyone, you know, people say, oh, is, is press hard and is it weird and blah, blah, blah. And we're going, you get to talk about something you actually really enjoy. <laughs> um, Ricky, Emily and I, I think, were the first binge watchers of this show because we were only supposed to see a couple of episodes at the production center. And we're like, no, 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 what, what's the next episode? And can we see the next episode? And it, we truly have a wonderful time together. Everyone really cares about each other, really cares about the project. And it comes from the top down. Um, it, Neil is just wonderful, incredible, so lovely and giving. And then you have Brian Fuller and Michael Green, who, like you said, they're really uh, highly creative types. And they've found a way to to um, make what can be some long hours and some. They make it all fun, and they make it all unenjoyable, and they make and and they also hold to incredibly high standards. They will go back and reshoot as many times as, as needed. Wow! <laughs> oh yeah, they do not. I, I think Brian said to me once that. You know, he said, look, I'm way more afraid of making anything mediocre than of anything else. So they will not stop until it feels right. And it's because everyone also feels a real sense of responsibility to the fans and to the viewers and to the material. And so it will be done until it is right. And on top of that, we got incredibly lucky in Fremantle and Star's because they felt the same way. They said, yes, keep on going until it's done right. Um, and you probably know that doesn't always happen with networks. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, like Michael says, whenever they would want to go into a topic, the answer back from the network was, yes, but only if you really go into it. How often do you get that? That's incredibly rare. Yeah, that's... Mm -hmm. That's fantastic. I mean, it, it definitely shows that there's a lot of hard work put in behind the scenes when we're watching these episodes week to week. So I just even appreciate that more as a fan. Um, so thank you for your hard work. But <laughs> <laughs> it's everybody else that I'm talking about, the, like hair, Corolla and Roselle, makeup, Colin Penman, uh, costumes. Oh, my goodness. Costumes, Suturette, Larlab. I mean... And, and then we're not even talking set design yet or, yeah. or cinematography or right. lighting. I mean, every element, everybody that's working on this, they're given 110. There's been nothing less. That's amazing. So I had saw you on Periscope and you had done a video uh, where you had some interest in playing the role of Storm. Yes. <laughs> so talk to me about that. Did you read any of the X-Men books growing up? And if there was anything that you could add to the role of Storm um, that hasn't been done yet, what would it be? Well, my moment when I really fell in love with the character of Storm was um, as a, I want to say I was about 12-year-old and we had just moved to the States. And I would love watching Saturday morning cartoons. That was what yes. I did. I would 
get up in the morning and watch that. There was gargoyles. There was, um, yes. you know, <laughs> yes, right? Gargoyles. You know that whole list oh, of yes. those amazing cartoons that would get you up early on a Saturday, too. Mm-hmm. I pretty much froze every time Storm came on screen. This beautiful black woman. And on top of it, I don't know if you remember, but in those cartoons, she also had the African dialect. She sure did. You're talking about yeah. the 90s. Yeah. You're talking about the X-Men animated series yeah. on Fox in the yeah. 90s. Oh, yep. Yeah, that was the mm-hmm. best. Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, re- oh, you know, when she would command the storms and the wind and I, ooh. Yes. Uh, sorry. <laughs> I listen to that voice when I'm reading um, X-Men books or even her solo run that recently um, was done. I hear that voice when I'm reading. So that that voice definitely resonates with me. And it definitely resonates with me. And I I definitely loved the idea of being able to play with that Um, because it literally had me frozen whenever I saw her on that screen. Um, and it was, I looked up to her. <laughs> Does that sound geeky to say? But I really looked up I to her. I did too. <laughs> That's no, normal same, to me. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah, same. She's the reason why I got into comic books in the first place. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm, because she was powerful, right? Yeah. She was, mm. Um, and, and, you know, I guess in some ways she does influence the... Uh, this <laughs> role a little bit, but it was, it was that kind of power that, you know, deep, still mountain like power, you know, that, that that comes from deep roots. It was it was a thing of beauty. Oh, wow. This is Kendall again. But let me just say that voice, that impression you just did, girl, you did that. Like <laughs> I, I can see this. I am envisioning in my head. <laughs> So that right. that answered my question. That's what she would add to the role of Storm is right. the accent, since you know mm-hmm. it's I mean, we, we non-existent. All know how that went. <laughs> you just said like half a sentence, and I'm already like, all right, so let's get this going. Your tea day for mm-hmm. Storm, okay? Hashtag campaign. Yes. Let's do it. Hashtag I love campaign. it. I love yep. it. <laughs> um, uh, so my next question for you is: even though Bilquis is a goddess and Goddesses, mythically, are not really ones to take advice from other people. But um, I wanted to know, if you could give Bilquis any advice, what advice would you give her? And then also, what do you think we as women, um, especially we as Black women, can learn from her? You know, I think that's one and the same. It would be, remember the greatness within Mm. That is one thing she reminds me of. I think that is something that we all can sometimes be reminded of. Um, Not sometimes, all the time. We're queens. We are queens. And there's so much that can come from the outside. There's so many different voices. There's so many people that are afraid of, I think, the power that is sensed within that work to silence our voices. All through that, I think we can benefit from being still and just remembering that greatness within. Preach yeah. on it, girl. 
Yeah, yes. I'm like, you, you're taking me to church, the church of Bilquis. <laughs> I want to attend. <laughs> I love it, right? Tell me when service is. <laughs> let me get my tithes together on that one. Right. Just don't let it be 8 o'clock because I, I struggle right. with that. I can't. <laughs> It'll be a it'll be a decent time in the afternoon. A decent time in the afternoon for the Bilquist service. <laughs> so let's say someone is going to throw a modern day party mm-hmm. uh, in Bilquist's honor. Mm. What do you think would be her signature drink? Like what cocktail will we be serving? What is this party gonna look like? But I really want to know what this cocktail is because I'm asking for a friend, you know. <laughs> uh, yeah, we- a friend. Yeah, you know, a friend for this Bilquist theme party. <laughs> we always ask for a friend, don't we? <laughs> yes, of course. Um, I, you know, it's funny. I was just about to say when you were talking about taking the church and you know going to worship uh, with Bilquist. I, I think that's a Bilquist. Bilquist is a brunch. <laughs> is a brunch worship with lots and lots of uh, frosé, which okay. I oh. have. Okay. Yeah, oh, yes, queen. <laughs> <laughs> Anywhere they I'm down with that. Sparkling wine and prosecco and fruit. Yeah, it's yeah. all good. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Taking note. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Kendall's uh, invitation for that is going to go out in like three days, just so everybody knows. <laughs> just in time for Memorial Day weekend. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. Um, so you guys are really, I would say like close as Jamie said, everybody, I'm sure you guys are joking around and having fun. And we saw that when you guys were here at South by, but I'm just curious if maybe you don't mind telling on them a little bit, if you could do a little (laughs) like, you know, who's most likely. So, um, don't spill too much tea, but I do want to know a little bit. Um, (laughs) just a little bit of tea. Yes. A little bit. Uh, who's going to be like the Instagrammer? Uh, sorry, Ricky. Um, you know, <laughs> yeah, that's, <laughs> that, that was easy. <laughs> I'm not mad at either. <laughs> lovely, absolutely lovely. And, you know, and it's, it's always fun because like he's taught me so much more about enjoying the Instagram and join the whichever, you know, like we, we have a great time together. And, oh, just share it. So, yeah, yeah. Riddle. He's the king. Okay. Well, that's good to know. I, I, I'm not. I'm not surprised by that at all. As we said, because um, we we follow all you guys, and so we, we know all of it on that one. We see it all. Um, <laughs> girl, <laughs> we see. <laughs> um, who's the biggest flirt? Oh, they flirt because it's kind of hard to say because we're such a family. So I'm like flirt. I'll flirt with the fans then. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we are all, I think we're all super social creatures. And we just, I mean, we just enjoy each other. So does that mean that's all of us? (laughs) I will take that as an affirmative, yes. (laughs) Um, Who's most like who they play off screen? Huh. Huh. Gosh, we're talking about some really talented performers here. So I would say, actually, I'll do I'll do you one opposite. The least like their character is Brucey, because he's the sweetest, kindest, most lovely person. And then he plays okay. this, you know, this intense um, 
uh, you know, crazy technical boy. So I can't yeah. first the answer a little bit, but yeah, Bruce is the least like his character. I could see that. I could see that because he is really awful <laughs> <laughs> on the screen, right? Yeah. Yes, I was really awful. This person, um, in life. yeah, yeah. I could see that. Um, yeah, he was really nice at South, but all of you guys were so great. And so I, nice. I just, I loved having that moment with you guys there because then later when I was like, y'all don't even know the show's about to light your hair on fire. It's about to be wig snatching. <laughs> um, <laughs> say it. Um, and my final question, if you could switch roles with anyone for a day, who would you play? Ooh, there's so many fun ones. Oh, so many fun ones. Um, but I, I just, you know, I, I've, told everyone of my love. Well, it'd be hard because I wouldn't want to switch it. Well, no. If that meant that he played Bilkos for a day, ooh, Orlando. I'd play Mr. Nancy <laughs> and have Orlando Jones play Bilkos. <laughs> I said oh that. Yeah. Yeah. That would be so you funny. Just, made this just for a day. Question. <laughs> uh. <laughs> um, yeah, no. So that, that, that would be my answer. Awesome. Well, on that note, listen, Utide, I think you need to come back on the podcast and talk to us more um, because this was fantastic. We've learned so much about the show and about you, um, Mm. and we really appreciate your time. Can you let our listeners know where they can find you on the interwebs and give us your social media handles? All right. Uh, Everyone can find me. It's actually pretty easy with me because they're all under my name. Um, so, uh, on Twitter, I'm at Yatide Badaki. On Instagram, I'm at Yatide. Um, so it makes it super simple. Excellent. Thanks for geeking out with us. This was fun. Thank you for having me. Bunch of girlfriends getting together, having a chat. Girl chat. (laughs) Yeah. Girl chat. (laughs) And you have to come back after the finale. Um, no spoilers, but yeah, girl, you did that. So we need to talk after <laughs> after that's Ooh, over. I, I hope. Uh, did you guys get a chance to check out the the Billquist tea, the man eater t shirt? I saw it. Yes. Yes. Yeah. With, with the, I'm wearing my own shirt, but it's the one that says "Believe" with the buffalo Ooh. on it. Yay! Oh, I love that one too. Um, yeah, no, I'm I'm really loving that Represent made those shirts as well because. Um, they're putting a portion of proceeds to both Planned Parenthood and the United Nations Refugee Agency. Which... Well, I need to get on it. Let me get on yes, it. Yes. And they have tank tops and sweatshirts. So, yeah, get your man-eater tea. Fun time. And thank you for plugging that. Yes, we're um, doing a giveaway on blackgirlnerds.com um, with those shirts. So check those out if you want. And thank you again for coming on the show. Yeah, we, we definitely want to talk to you more. Oh, thank you all. Y'all are lovely. (laughs) Decepticomics are a traveling comedy group that was founded in February 2012. John Minus is one of the members of Decepticomics, and in this segment, he talks to us about the state of comedy. What's offensive? What's not offensive? Where are lines drawn when it comes to comedians today? as we're more socially conscious and aware of issues such as homophobia, transphobia, and things like rape jokes. Is that really appropriate now in 2017? This is our discussion and our next segment featuring John Minus of Decepticomics. Welcome to this segment of the Black Girl Nerds podcast. My name is Jamie. I am your host. 
prepare to laugh, guys. Prepare to geek out. You're going to have fun on this segment. Decepticomics, you may have heard of them. We've interviewed them before on our previous uh, podcast back when we were on Blog Talk Radio. And I'm very excited to have an encore of one of the members of Decepticomics, Mr. John Myers is here. (laughs) John, thanks for coming on the show. Hi. (laughs) Sorry, I didn't sleep a lot and I'm on a lot of caffeine, so I'm all squirrely. I know you're you you're already like getting involved with the discussion and I hadn't even finished introducing you yet. <laughs> um but thank you so much for being on the show. And we have here Valerie Complex, our co host. Valerie, thanks so much for joining us. Oh my god. Thank you for having me. <laughs> I don't come on the podcast nearly enough. Mainly because I kinda hate the sound of my own voice, but I'm getting better. Stop BGN it. has helped me get better. Uh, you have a you have a velvety, perfect radio voice. I have the voice of somebody who's very old but hasn't hit puberty yet. Man, I see hearing that I could have made so much money in the '90s as Girl Six or something like that. <laughs> that movie was the joint. I loved Girl Six. Six is for yeah, sex. I <laughs> yeah, I could have made money as girl six, man. You, that's a compliment. I actually you sound like you could have been in SWV. What's that? You sound like you could have been in SWV. I guess My sister went to school with them actually. She went to school with all three of them in the Bronx. I got old photos of her and my sister with the, they got the bangle earrings and everything and they got the 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 you know eight ball jackets and and everything and it's like oh that's SWV I'm like oh wow everybody's old <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, thank no, you for you're having me and it's really great meeting you and uh, I'm ready to get the show on the road I want to know what you think about some things so I can't wait to get to the hot topics part. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I I do want our listeners who hadn't yet had the opportunity to listen to our first podcast when we interviewed you guys to tell us a little bit about who Decepticomics are. And uh, you guys are touring right now, I understand. So tell us where we can expect to see some of your shows. Uh, Okay, so yeah, Decepticomics are five stand-up comedians. It's Sarone Russell, Mike Brown, Gordon Baker Bone and Dylan Stevenson and myself. And we are on tour right now through the South. Well, basically all up and down the East Coast. We're actually going to the Midwest as well. And um, we're just basically five guys who came together because, you know, we're all black comics, but we're all very different. And we all don't fit any of the black comedian tropes. And when you come to see our show, you know, some people see, oh, like five black males, they're all going to talk about the same things. But we talk about all sorts of things like my my comedy. I talk about mental health issues like my own and my family's. I talk about nerd stuff. My current favorite joke of mine is about how um, if a kid wants to be Batman, he probably doesn't mind seeing his parents killed. So that's something you should worry about. (laughs) um yeah so i talk about all sorts of nerd stuff sex stuff really you know raunchy stuff gordon talks about like he he had he has his own style he he's kind of like a hurricane 
<laughs> he bounces around to a lot of like real life issues and it's just it's hard to describe Gordon except that he's wildly entertaining. Um, me and him are from New Jersey, and even being from the same state, we're still wildly different because he's a city mouse and I'm a country mouse. Well, I'm a suburban mouse, basically. Um, like a lot of blurs, you know, I'm, I grew up in the suburbs, so my whole take on what it's like being black and growing up around white people isn't something that's really addressed, I feel like. In comedy, because you have lots of black people who move to the suburbs, but I was born in the suburbs, raised by them, molded by them. You know, I didn't see the city until I was already a man. Oh, by gosh, then I that, didn't. That Bane quote. Yes. Yes. How long I could get into it before somebody realized I was. Doing. You forgot to make the voice. You forgot to do the well, voice. It makes it too um. Too obvious. Too obvious, yeah. <laughs> but the voices were. I was born raised by them, molded by them. I did. <laughs> oh, that's a good already. impression. <laughs> by then, it was blinding. <laughs> I was born in the hood. Um, well, <laughs> oh man, that was, an, that was really awful. Um, Mike Brown's from Harlem, so he talks about, you know, that whole New York style, that Harlem style, and, you know, and how the city's changing and, you know, gentrification and how that he has some, he has a lot of political humor, but he's also silly too. So he's, he's, um, he's his own thing. Then there was Dylan, Dylan Stevenson. He was from Michigan, but he's lived in Harlem for years now as well. And he's got the most like, to me, the, the, the most esoteric style and the one I, I like the most is he talks about a lot of nerdy stuff as well. Really nerdy stuff. He has a whole set about how Batman is probably really good at giving oral sex to men. Interesting. It, makes, it makes sense when he explains it. You have to come see it. <laughs> but it, it really makes total sense. Um, <laughs> trust me. And uh, he, he's a gifted, gifted storyteller. If you follow him on Twitter, the Dylan one, you already know. He's got thousands and thousands of followers. He's actually Joe Biden's favorite tweeter. Really? I don't know if you saw that article about um, Joe, B- Joe Biden reading his, uh, his Joe and Obama uh, bro tweets. No, wow. I've not that. heard about that. Yeah, that's amazing. It was, it was, in, it was in Time Magazine, actually. And um, it said that his daughter shows him the tweets about him and Obama, and they use they they use one of Dill's tweets. So he actually is Joe Biden's favorite tweeter. That's what's up. I'm telling you, these celebrities they they, they check our tweets, they read our feed, they like it, and uh, that's awesome that he got recognized by Joe Biden. And I I would be remiss if I did not mention, you know, you had. Also talk about the kind of um, comedy that you do and that you talk about mental health issues. And you were on our mental health podcast, the first one we did. We did two. And I just want to say that podcast was one of our most downloaded episodes that we've ever done. And Shonda Rhimes retweeted that episode when I had put it out on Twitter. Another person who reads someone's tweets, by the way. Um, <laughs> Hi Shonda, how you doing? <clears throat> one of I'm one of her favorite <laughs> people to follow on Twitter. 
Um, but yeah, I, I think that that's amazing that, um, you know, you're so versatile that you can talk about some really, you know, serious issues like mental illness, but then also use the work that you do in comedy as a way to kind of balance that out and show a little levity to, to those kind of situations. So can you give us some examples of uh, what type of jokes that you tell that's in that sphere of mental health and mental illness? You know, it's funny that you say that because I was doing a show in Boston at a sci-fi bookstore called uh, Rickard and Beagle, which if you're in the Boston suburbs, you should definitely go to. It's amazing. Um, it, that's not even like just a plug. Like, I really enjoy that place. They have they have uh, Cthulhu candles that smell like the end of the world. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, like somebody somebody had come up to me after that show and said, oh, I'd seen you before and you did one type of thing, but I didn't know you had such a wide range of comedy. Mm. And I was like, yeah, well, you know, mess with me. <laughs> but <laughs> but yeah, I since I, you know, I have mental illness, I'm bipolar and um, and it runs in my family as well. Like my mother had major depression. So I talk about that and I feel like that's something, especially as black, especially as black men, because black women will talk about, you know, in general, they've always been better. And that's women in general. will talk about mental health issues and seek treatment. You very, very rarely hear black men talk about themselves that deeply. Mm-hmm. And me, I'm my favorite subject. So I love talking about me. <laughs> so- I talked about um, how I how I've I've been hospitalized, how my mother was hospitalized, things like that. And um, I'm trying to write more material about how it is to take psych meds. Um, like, and it's not ri- like you will find white people like Fritz Gethard has a whole hour about his struggles with his own mental illness and things like that. And it's amazing and it's powerful and it's relatable. And I don't know why we don't have that for us. So it's not something I set out to do, but it's something that I noticed we need. I'm not trying to say I'm the hero we need, but I'm kind of the hero we need. <laughs> you are. And I know and you're trying hero- to be funny right now, but you you really are. Like that's important work that you're doing. I you know, it, it's it's weird because sometimes in my day job, because um, I work in mental health too. So that's the other thing I say. I'm not only a, the president, I'm a client. Um, so I, I try and educate people from both sides about like what you need to do. Cause I get mad at people. I get really mad at people when they say, oh, I stopped taking my meds because I know personally how bad it is to take my med, how bad it is to stop taking my meds. And I know professionally how bad it is to stop taking, <clears throat> to just stop taking meds. And I understand why, because with, um, I mean, not to get too deep into it, but we already started with people who are, especially with people who are bipolar, being manic is freaking great. (laughs) It feels really good. And taking your meds to bring, to make you even, it doesn't feel good. It does make you not feel as good. So I understand it. But for those people, I say, look at the people around you. Are they enjoying, are they enjoying your life? your manic periods as much as you are. That's not necessarily funny, but so I'm trying to figure out how to make it funny. <laughs> no, but, no, but I mean, I, I just know, want... It is, no, I was saying it is still comedy. Yeah. So it still has to be funny. And, and like I said, I'm not, I'm not setting out to change the world, but there's, there's things that I've been through that 
I know other people have been through and it needs to be brought up. We need to, what's our, what's this whole show about black nerds? We, I mean, Jamie, remember, and you still get it. Remember how, when I first started talking to you, how like, we were like, oh my God, there's so many, many of us. Yeah. And we're, and we've been around. Long enough. Yeah. And we've been around long enough to remember when there wasn't so many of us and we were out there on our own. Mm-hmm. So whenever I tell, like, whenever I tell these these jokes, like, one of my favorites now is about Doctor Who having a black reincarnation. Because I feel like that's so much me. It's so nerdy, and it's so black. <laughs> <laughs> black and, like, and nerdy. It was, yeah. Blurdy. If there was... Blurdy, yeah. If there was any comedian for this generation, it's me. So... I, I think the fresh humor... Is something that is definitely needed, especially, you know, with the, the recycling of the jokes and stuff that's sort of outdated. Um, <clears throat> Dave yeah. Chappelle. And, um, <laughs> yes. Oh my Let's God. What a train wreck that was. That. I'm, uh, I'm Let's talk get about that because I want to get the, the uh, layman's point of view on that. On his two specials, what are, what are your guys' summa- summations? I feel like that whole bit that he did felt like something that could have come out in 1995. His jokes <laughs> were so dated. You know what I'm saying? Like even like using homophobic slurs, like you know, fag. Like who says that now in 2017? Like that's not something that's cool to say. So like I just I, I didn't understand why he thought that those things were still funny now. And then also the transphobic jokes, like people are just, people are now, of course, we're more socially conscious. We're, we're more mature when it comes to intersectionality. But I think nowadays people aren't, those kind of jokes really aren't that funny because people are more accepting of people that are from different backgrounds and different, you know, nationalities and genders and sexuality. So yeah, it just wasn't that good. I didn't even laugh like a little bit. Like, I think we were watching it and something else was going on. And then we just turned it off because it was like not funny. Like, overall, not funny. Aside from, you know, the sort of tasteless jokes, it, it just didn't have much to offer. And, you know, you didn't like, like zero different boots. I don't even remember it because I was so into something else that was happening. And it was like, you know, I remember the, you know, David Chappelle has the ability to sort of command a whole room. But I, I think I was expecting more of his socio-political humor, especially in this day and age. And he came with something else. And it was just, I don't know. I'm not sure what his thinking process was behind it, but it wasn't funny to me. But, now, you know, so, shout, shout I, out to the people who enjoyed it. Cause, I mean, I, yeah, there was a lot of Ashy Bros that loved it. So, yeah, shout out to them. Well, here, here's, uh, here's what I have to say to that. If a performance isn't what you wanted it to be, does that make it a bad performance? I mean, Is performing what he did? Like you said you wanted it. You wanted, you wanted it to be a different thing than what he did. Now is no, that? I said I, wanted, uh, I said I was expecting something different. But I mean, all yeah. all entertainment, all comedy is subjective anyway. So, yeah, to us, it is going to be bad. 
to him, it may not be a bad performance. To somebody else, it's probably the greatest performance he's ever had. But that's what the entertainment industry is all about. It's all about subjectivity. <laughs> right? I, mean, well, I thought it was cool. If you liked it, I mean, I'm not going to bash you for it. It's not... What you find funny is sort of what you find funny in this instance. Um, you know, I just don't know if David Chappelle appeals to a mass audience anymore. I mean, I really don't yeah, know. Maybe, maybe another show. I feel like we've outgrown Dave Chappelle. I'm sorry to say. Like, I love Dave Chappelle, and I think he's still funny in a lot of aspects. But that last comedy concert, like I said, it felt like something from the 90s. It just felt so outdated and old-fashioned. Now, for, for you two, you're in a world of, like, socially aware, you know, we're on Twitter, we're, in, we're, we're definitely in that a more socially conscious bubble. Right. There are lots of people who have no idea, who have never heard what social justice, who have never heard what cis means, who have yes, no... Yes, that's so true. Lots, and, like, so this whole world we're in with being young activists is not representative of the vast majority of people. Like when I go to work and I talk to my coworkers, they barely know anything about what's going on. Like they don't know about stuff that the rest of us are sweating our hair out about. about. Most people are focused on their family, their friends and keeping their job. So they are not at all concerned or worried about the things that you, that that you two or I would keep us from finding something, would keep from finding something funny. So <clears throat> it's not that, like, I'm not saying you're wrong, but as to saying that the world has passed him by, I, I really have to take, I really have to say, I don't think that's true because the world is still in his, the world is still in his arena. They would have paid him that much money if they didn't think he and, was, they weren't going to it back. And let me take and they, that, they, let me take that back. Cause I didn't mean to say like, we've outgrown him and you know that's the end of dave Chappelle. i just felt like that particular comedy show concert felt dated to me between the homophobic slurs the transphobic slurs um the rape jokes i mean are we still doing rape jokes in 2017 i just i don't know i i just felt like that comedy would have killed a decade ago compared to now. And you're right. Like people today, even my coworkers and people that I meet outside of the four corners of the internet are completely unaware of a lot of the social justice issues that we talk about on Twitter every day. But still like, I don't think that 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 show resonated well with a lot of people. And I saw, you know, even people that I talked to, friends and stuff that saw the comedy concert, they didn't think it was the funniest of his work. Like, you know, Killing Me Softly is still, to me, I think his best work yet. But, again, it's the, all relative, the, right? <laughs> the, the other thing that I that I have, the, the other talking point about that is, and I, and I had this conversation with somebody the other day, is that why are we at a point where comedians have to be so the biggest social commentary? Like, yeah. we're at a point where there's no media. Like, we used to go to the media to say, to tell us how to feel or to make, or to point out, you know, what, you know, the, the facts and how, and the, the important commentary. We don't have that anymore. We don't have the Walter Conkrites anymore. We don't have those stately newsmen, you know, like those guys who came up 
chasing leads and like pounding the pavement. We don't have people whose voice has ever, who have any gravitas that our parents and our grandparents had. Mm-hmm. We don't have them. So where are we looking for? We're putting all this pressure on comedians to be those voices. And to be honest, as a comedian, you we're we're trying to be funny. We're not trying to save the world. If that mm-hmm. happens, then fine. But like Dave Chappelle isn't out there to, and there there are people who do that. There's there's your John Oliver's, there's your John Stewart's. But right. Dave Chappelle isn't out there trying to you know be that. He's a really silly guy, and he had some silly thoughts about these things, and he wrote and he wrote them down because he thought they were funny. That's his point. Like the the um, like he had he had the joke about uh about there were two guys who were producers and one. And one was gay and he panicked and he didn't know and he asked him for a pitch. So he came up with this really silly idea about a superhero who was never recognized because he always changed his outfit because gay men never wear the same thing twice. That is silly. It's an incredibly silly idea. But it was, (laughs) I got to admit, I thought it was funny. And I don't think it was hateful towards gay men. But I'm not a gay man, you know? And to say and to say that like nobody I thought nobody I knew thought it was funny, is is precisely that's a that's a um, cognitive bias because it's like if nobody I know thinks it's if everybody I know thinks it's X then it has to be X. You know, Valerie, what are your thoughts on this? Uh, I think I, I guess I should have explained better. I don't. I'm not seeing his comedy from a standpoint like, oh, you know, yeah, his socio-political commentary is great, but if it ain't funny, it ain't funny. Yeah. Like, I, it don't, ha- it doesn't really have anything to do with, um, well, for me, um, okay, so his transphobic and homophobic slurs are tasteless, sure, but. I'm not gonna lie. Sometimes I'm hip- 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 hypocritical, and if something is funny, then I may laugh. But I'm not gonna tell nobody. But it's just in this case. In this case, in this case, it's just, it, it was it was tasteless, and it wasn't. Funny. And it wasn't fun. Yeah. So I think that's I think that's kind of what made it stand out for me, um, because you know nobody's perfect. And we can't all, you know, I know a lot of us like to, you know, we're all, we say we're activists and everything and we try to stick by our word. But sometimes this life is too heavy and sometimes I may hear something that's pretty tasteless. Usually I think, you know, rape jokes are kind of like off the, off limits. I don't even want to hear it. I don't care how funny it is. But some things, it may catch a giggle out of me and I'll be like damn I just fucked up and I have to go whip my back and atone for my sins or something like that but in this case with David it just it, it wasn't it wasn't even funny it didn't really elicit much of a response except for blinks and stares I mean I don't expect somebody like Daniel Tosh to use his comedy to save the world um, but he's just to me he's just an unfunny person it doesn't really have anything to do with social justice or anything like that. Some people are just not funny, no matter what they do. And uh, I just think in this case, David Chappelle is funny. He's really got great comedic timing. I think he's pretty genius. It's just this comedy special was among some of his worst work um, for many reasons, aside from social justice. The jokes weren't funny. 
they didn't feel relevant. And I don't even mean like relevant as in the issues that are going on today. I mean, like his crack jokes are almost evergreen because crack has been around forever and people are probably going to smoke crack until the bomb drops. But so stuff like that is like, okay, understandable, laugh about it, whatever. But I don't know. Um, this just wasn't, it, it, it didn't tickle my fancy. Sorry. No. Uh, and and I, on that level, if you just come out, if you just come up and say they weren't good jokes, they weren't funny. I no argument with that. No argument because that at the because that's a, it's supposed to be funny. If you just say like I didn't think it was funny, then you know I I can't argue with that. If you say something like oh it wasn't socially relevant, you know I can discuss with you about that. But if you're just like they weren't funny jokes to me, I'm like yeah all right, then, then you're right. You're right, because that's what comedy is supposed to. If you don't think they were funny, like to be to be honest, I thought I thought he looked a little rusty. I thought yeah. he looked a little rusty. Yeah, I would agree with that. Like he been out, he been out the game too long. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. It feels like he's stuck in another decade. Like he he hasn't caught up with the rest of modern day comedians. Mm-hmm. True, and I think that's why know, people took to. Kevin Hart. I'm sorry. I think that's why people took to Kevin Hart because he he is fresh, he is current, and he's talking about things that people find funny now. Yeah, and things that people relate to. And he doesn't have to relegate to using homophobic slurs or rape jokes to get a laugh. You know, he'll talk about self, he'll do, he does like a lot of self-deprecating humor, which to me personally, I think is the best kind of humor. So he'll talk about his height and, you know, how short he is. And he talks about his wife and his kids. And and he does it in a way that's funny because it's relatable. And that to me and is more humorous. And I think that's always been Kevin Hart's shtick. Mm-hmm. You know, that's always been, uh, and, and, you know, Harsh topics has always been David Chappelle's thing. I just don't think he. I don't know. It's really hard to explain. I just don't think he did it. In he a just way missed that the mark like, on this this last one. Yeah. Hopefully so he'll come. Good. He'll make a good comeback. And because I, I like I said I like Dave Chappelle. It's just it wasn't hitting it for me on this last comedy concert. His his the and the other the other thing I wanted to say was like don't be ashamed of laughing at something. Like you you did, like you mentioned how like this is these are really messed up times. Like we need, and, and that's kind of the danger of being too woke quote unquote, is that you can't enjoy anything anymore when this is a time when you need to enjoy things the most. I don't think so. I think you can still find things that are funny. Like I said, like, I just feel like right now, I think period, not even just right now, but rape jokes are not cool. They're just not cool. And they're not funny. They're just not funny homophobic jokes they're just not funny transphobic jokes they're not funny to me like it's not even about socially being conscious it's just about you know insulting a group of people that's how i see it and there's so much other material out there to joke about why do you always have to go to these kinds of things well, all right. Let, so let me ask you because I, I I've gotten in trouble for this before. I have um. It's not a it's not a rape joke. It's more of a rape anecdote. 
but it's it's about this woman I was with who used to have rape fantasies, and I and I just talk about that, like in the context of her fantasies and how it related to me. And it was an interracial thing, and it comes out. It it isn't it isn't. It's about the situation, so I feel like we can't avoid because it's a it's a thing in the world, and you can't avoid talking about anything all the time. But what I, the way I equate things like race, rape, like any of those really hot button issues, it's like being a bo- like being on a bomb squad. Like if you're really good, you can defuse that bomb and get a big laugh. The problem is most 90% of the people who try those jokes aren't really good and they, it ends up blowing up in their faces. So it's the sort of thing where like you shouldn't attempt it until you are really really good or else you're going to get you're going to it's going to blow up in your face. Mm-hmm. So like I I wouldn't say that it's never funny but it's rarely funny. Because it's yeah, such, I haven't like, come across a rape joke yet that I found funny. I just I don't know, and and maybe it goes again to that subjectivity conversation. Um, what's funny to me, maybe, or what's not funny to me, may be funny to you, and vice versa. But for me personally, I just I don't see anything funny about that. So. Yeah, no, no, and and that's true. Like it may it might not ever be funny to you but that doesn't mean it can't ever be funny it just it will never be funny to you yeah it, it, that's it's just a, odd i don't it's know it's the thing you it's a thing that comedians struggle with because it's not just about that there's, i just feel like there's so many things never, for comedians to talk about why do you have to talk about traumatic issues that could trigger someone that's been through sexual assault or dealt with sexual violence at the expense they, of that person's trauma. That's almost like me making fun of somebody with a disability and, you know, making a joke about it. And they're there in the audience and they feel like, you know, shit for me talking about them that way. Like, I just feel like, I don't know. There's, I, I just feel like there's so much conversations to have outside of people with disabilities, people that are rape victims, you know, marginalized LGBTQ people. Like there's, you can't talk about your kids. You can't talk about work. You can't talk about Donald Trump. Like there's just, there's a lot of material to go around. Well, here's, here's, here's my answer to that. There is, the, the first thing I say is that there are people in those groups who like to be joked about. Mm-hmm. You can't paint anybody with a broad brush. There are there are rape survivors who don't mind rape jokes because it helps them deal. There's a lot of people who don't, and especially um, people with disabilities. Like I've I've heard comedians talk about it, and there's even um, a couple of comedians who have disabilities. They joke about their disabilities all the time. That's and they say true. They like hearing jokes about them. That's true. Because when nobody talks about them, it makes them feel coddled and babied. Yeah. Like a lot of times these people we call special, like saying, oh no, don't joke about them is kind of infantilizing. The thing they most want to be is treated like anybody else. Right. So like people, like blind people, like all those, they love being roasted because they feel included. And like, if you, if you're always thinking about, oh, this might hurt somebody's feelings, you will never be funny. It's impossible. You won't be funny in any way if you're always thinking about who this might offend. There would be no humor. Mm-hmm. 
So I mean, it's just a it's just a thing. It's I think sometimes you want to offend people. I want to if there there are times like a lot of my race jokes are meant to offend people, especially like racist nerds. Yeah, but that's different. I, I just think it's a very slippery slope, and yeah, I, I don't I I. I, I don't know. I guess I just don't feel comfortable co-signing to that um, aspect. Well, I'm pretty sure there are some people who are like, oh, you know, let, you know, let's make a joke out of it or, you know, let's have some fun. But I, I, I haven't met anyone like that. And I'm a rape survivor and I, I don't think I've ever said, oh, well... Let's have oh, no. some yeah. fun at my expense. I don't know. It's just odd. I mean, it's not personally with you. It's just I, I that kind of thinking is strange to me. And maybe I'm missing something or maybe I need to examine that a bit more, talk with some other people who maybe find solace in that, in that type of humor, um, you know, based on their trauma. But I, I it's just... I don't know. It's just weird. It's something you have to do. You don't have. You don't have to be okay with it. It's fine. But some people are, and I. And what my my point is that you have to be okay with other people being okay with it. You don't have to be okay with it. Does that make any sense? Yeah, but I don't well, think we're judging people that are okay with those kinds of okay. jokes. We're just saying that for us, it's not funny. Like I just pers- I don't see myself going out and paying for a Dave Chappelle ticket if all he's going to talk about is rape jokes and homophobic jokes. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, of course. That that's your and you know what? That's even better because a lot of times where you see these, these like comedians have these meltdowns and and have to destroy audience members is because a lot of people just go to see comedy like no frills, black letters on white. They have no idea what the comedian is going to do. And I think that happened to Margaret Cho at the stress factory in New Jersey. Like, I think people just like, Oh, I've heard her name. She's Asian. And then they just go and they have no idea what she's about. So I would much rather you say, I don't like James Appel's jokes. I'm not going to go. than just show up blind and then get mad. It's like, you're doing it right. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, I think people, I think all comedians would prefer that whoever comes to see them has some idea what they're about. Yeah. Like, when I go, when I go up, I don't think, I don't think a lot of people expect me to talk about as much black stuff as I talk about. But I do. And then, and then they don't expect me to have a, you know, four or five minute joke about Harry Potter. But I do. Which is also another one of my favorites. It's about coming out of the closet as a Ravenclaw. Is that... Are you saying it's about people knowing knowing what they're getting into? Is that what you is that what you mean? Yeah. That that comedians are getting pissed off because people are showing up to their shows because they they're people are like for example, you know, um uh I guess the one time where uh Dan Tosh um and this woman were going at it because he made a rape joke and she went back at him and they were having this back and forth or whatever. And she ended up leaving or getting kicked out or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very possible. She didn't know what to expect and never heard of Daniel Tosh. And she may have heard from her friends. Oh, he's funny. He's this, he's that. But it's also possible that she may have knew who he was and liked this comedy and then went and heard something unexpected. So you just, I guess you just 
if, never if know. You know. But I see what you mean. Daniel, Daniel Josh does <clears throat> he does not hide his comedy. It's no secret. It's it's very offensive. It is extremely offensive. Um so yeah, so I if you if you go to see somebody, you gotta yeah, I think it's like we all say, a comedy show you're most Unless you're going to see a Seinfeld or like the aforementioned Sebastian Maniscalco, there is completely safe comics who are also funny. That is not all comics. So you, so yeah, it is kind of a little buyer beware, you know. If you're going to a comedy show, sight unseen, you have to know that some something's probably going to offend you, and you have to know if that's going to make you mad or not, and you can always leave. Like trying to bring the whole showdown. I've never seen a heckler win over a crowd. I can tell you that much. I've never seen a heckler like like the crowd be like, "Yeah, you're right. I was enjoying this show until right now, but that random person is right." Now it's it's hard because I I don't want to sound like I'm bullying you, but like as a comedian, it's it gets it's a weird area, you know. Yeah. I had this I had this very experience the other night where like a black woman was seeming to be offended by my jokes and I don't think my jokes are are denig- denigrating to black people and I asked this other table who were enjoying them I'm like did it seem like I was cuz you know I I get sometimes I don't know how I come across especially to black people cuz you know it's from the cities I'm suburban, sometimes urban people might think I'm like a sellout, whatever. The whole thing. You know how it is. We've had this discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, but this other, these other people, they were like, you, you have to understand that there's going to be black people who don't get you at all and find you offensive. So now I'm trying to figure out, do I need to change my comedy to not be offensive to them? Or am I doing my comedy right? And it should and it should offend them. It's a it, there's so much that goes into this. Right. There's so much that goes, and sometimes your point is to make people laugh at the offensive thing because it's something they don't want to acknowledge. Like I try and get pe- white people to acknowledge their secret biases in relation oh. to me. So when I talk about how. You know, I have this voice, but it doesn't sound as voice is going to come out of this body. That's not something I have to deal with. I mean, well, it used to be, but like you, you deal with that with black people, but you way more deal with that with white people. Or at least everybody, you know, somebody like, oh, you know, you sound that whole you sound white thing. If I talk about my my I sound white thing, that's not because I'm upset with it. I'm upset with people who are saying it. Mm-hmm. So when they start to realize, oh, I'm talking about you in the audience they're going to get uncomfortable. They're going to get offended. But that's my point. I want them to think about what they say before they say it. But I think so talking about I- topics of racism, which black comedians do a lot of the times, I think that that's something that's not really an issue. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't think that that's offensive towards either black people or, you know, people of other different races. Just talking about oh, race. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, you would be mistaken. <laughs> well, at least, I mean, I, I guess, it, I, and it goes back to what Valerie said earlier, like, as long as it's funny, like, you can execute it. Because, I mean, think about, like, our the great comedians. Yeah, the, anything the if great, it's funny. The great black comedians of our past have 
always talked about race. I mean, Richard Pryor, Bill Cosby, you know, Eddie Murphy, Chris Rock, like they've always talked about race in their routine. And it never was something that was offensive or jarring to us. It was just really funny. So All right, here here I have an example, not not to not to cut you off, but I just I have to say this about Richard Pryor talked about a lot of gay stuff. And if you're yes. black, you can't talk about gay stuff in anything but a really negative way. So did Eddie I Murphy. Made lots of, yes. Yeah. But yeah. And they and they got away with it for a while because they were the funniest people on the planet. And the if times not, back then, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. It's like LeBron can do things because he's LeBron, you know? But if you're just Joe Schmo, you know, comedian trying to work your way up, it's hard for me to do gay stuff. It's hard for a lot of comics, black comics coming up to do gay stuff to black audiences because unless you're making fun of them. Mm-hmm. Like if you're doing anything anything less in a pejorative manner, a lot of black audiences will take will will tune out. A lot of black audiences are very conservative about that stuff. Like neocon conservative, you know? Can't make fun of religion. Don't make fun of religion. Don't say anything nice about gay people. So huh. they'll get offended, but it's not something. It's like just because somebody gets offended doesn't mean the joke's wrong. Hmm. Um, I, I'm not really sure. <laughs> Uncomfortable silence. No, I don't. Favorite. I don't disagree with you. There's. There's a. Like, I guess, quote unquote, offensive things when it comes to race that I find funny. Like, I mean, look at Dave Chappelle's show. Like, that whole show is about race. And and a lot of those sketches were really funny. But, I mean, when it's something that's really traumatic and triggering and, and I think something that can be potentially life-threatening. I mean, racism can be life-threatening as well, but, you know transphobia is what I'm speaking of and, and sexual violence that I don't know. I don't, I just don't see the humor in those things. Anyways, well, we're, we're beating a dead horse going back about this. <laughs> I have, I, 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 I actually, I'm enjoying this conversation. It, it, like, no, I think you guys are making good points and it's opening my eyes to some stuff. Like, for instance, like, I don't, I know, you know, I might be new to some of your eyes, but my mother, my mother committed suicide. I love suicide jokes because it helps ease that pain, you know, because it's like you can't see anything funny about it. And it's just a constant black hole. So when I hear people make jokes, I'm like, you know, there's a little this. Maybe if I can find humor in this, it, it just doesn't hurt as much, you know, because otherwise it's just always. Negative, but if you can think of somebody of some joke that made you laugh in that darkness, then that eases it for me. Now I know a lot of people. Some people are very that that is very triggering, but for me it's the opposite. Yeah. So so that's my personal example of how a, a negative experience can be can be um, made a little leveraged into not made something positive. positive. Okay. Yeah. And that's why I try so hard to make jokes about that ish about that because it's the only way I'm gonna get over it. Like honestly, like it's been almost 14 years. I haven't dealt with it at all until recently. Writing jokes about it, finding whatever humor in this situation is the only way I've managed to start to start to process my mother's death. Hmm. 
So comedy isn't that important, but it kind of is. It, it's it's weird. <laughs> comedy is very important. <laughs> I mean, we, we definitely need it in this world. And, um, and I really appreciate the work that you do, John. You, you guys are so much fun to, to watch your tweets on Twitter and I've, I've seen some of your stand-up stuff on YouTube, and you guys do some really great work. Can you let our listeners know, um, again, like where we can find you on the interwebs and what your next tour date is if we are in your town? Okay, I for, I didn't get to mention our the last member, because there's five of us, Jerome Russell. He's from, he's from Georgia. He's from America's Georgia. And one of his jokes to say is his that um because he has a very strong southern accent. He's like, I'm from the south. I'm from Georgia, and that's why I have this accent. I'm not you know disabled or <laughs> developmentally delayed. And people laugh at that because you know he's he's saying that you know my this accent's so strong that some people think that I have a disability. But that's just how I sound. I'm be, southern is my disability. So <laughs> that's funny. Yeah. Like I said, it's all how you do it. It's all how you do it. Yeah. It's ridiculously funny. Um, But yeah, we have, we we have, uh, we're going to be in Orlando on the 19th and then the 20th in Nashville, uh, 21st in Louisville. The 22nd is our big show in Atlanta um, at the Relapse Theater. You really want to come out to that one. That's going to be quite the big deal. Um, the 24th, we're going to be in Cincinnati, the 25th, Chicago, 26th, St. Louis, and the 27th in Highland. You can find all our tour dates on decepticomics.com slash tour. And once again, we're John Minus at Don Coyote, um, Dylan Stevenson at El Dillo, no, the Dill One, the Dill One, the number one, uh, Mike Brown at Yo Mike Brown, um, Sarone Russell is just Sarone Russell and Gordon Baker Bone at Baker Bone. Follow us, tweet us. We're really, we're really funny guys. And um, we're going to try to go to FanCon. Yeah. Okay. Wouldn't that be a great panel? That would be an amazing panel. And I would love for you guys to come to FanCon and make that happen. So. Let's take the word try out. Let's just say you're coming. Oh. Yeah, all right. We're coming to FanCon. <laughs> there you go. Make the formal announcement. There we go. Yes. Yeah. You heard we'll it here first. <laughs> so, yeah. All right. Thanks for thanks for letting me, um, for having this time. This, this was a really good um, conversation. Yeah, it was. We, we got a little, I have... little deep on this one. <laughs> We well, it's it's I think it's what I think about all the time. Yeah. You know, it's like thinking about what your jokes are doing and what effect you want them to have. It's it's pretty deep. A lot goes into this, and sometimes it may not seem like it, but even the silliest joke probably was rewritten forty times. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Thank but, you, John. This was great. Yeah. Oh, it was excellent and meeting I strong, you, John. Huh. I said it was excellent meeting you. <laughs> oh, thank you. I hope to, I hope to see you in person. Uh, one last thing, non sequitur. You should definitely start watching Agents of Shield again. I refuse. I, refuse. I was gonna say no. Yeah, that's no. it's a no for me, dog. It's a no. Uh, <laughs> that's like non-negotiable. There's other shows right now that are incredibly good that I rather focus my time and attention to. 
than <laughs> Agents of Shield. I'm sorry. You know what? Yeah. I feel bad. I have I am like so behind on all the comic book shows. The Flash, Arrow. I haven't even seen Legion yet. Yeah, and everybody says Legion's really good. That's I'm gonna, what I I'm heard. Gonna, yeah. That. It uh, get get some issues in the next few days, yeah. but um, I think The Walking yeah, Dead is the only comic book show that I'm actually watching right now still. Uh, and that's the worst. I was gonna say people are barely hanging on. There. I have a love hate relationship. Hearing. It's a love hate thing with me and Walking Dead. I ch- I checked that out three seasons ago. Haven't regretted it. Haven't regretted it once. I- I'm not even gonna fight with you and say it's worth watching at this point. <laughs> I mean, it's good, <laughs> but it's. It's a back and forth thing with me, and it's so hard to articulate it. <laughs> it's a chore. I, I totally yeah. get it. Yeah. All right. Well, you guys wanted to go early so you get off, and I'm taking up all your time. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry about it. You're good. Thank you, John. This was great. And um, um, yeah, we look forward to I, hearing more from you. Yeah. No, I always have such a good time on you guys' show. All right. Well, have a good night. Okay. <laughs> Make sure you follow up on FanCon. Yeah. No, I totally will. I totally will. I'm gonna put together a packet and everything. Awesome. Totally will. All right. All right. Thanks a have lot, a good guys. night, John. Thank Thanks, Jamie. The Black Girl Nerds podcast is produced by Jamie Broadnax. Various episodes are edited by Jamie Broadnax, Mr. Daniel, and John Bauer. The opening theme song to our show is written and performed by Samus. Various instrumentals are performed by Samus, Sky Blue, and Shubzilla. You can find episodes of the Black Girl Nerds podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Spreaker, and Spotify. That was a HeadGum Podcast.